I invite you to open your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 1, or chapter 2 actually, Mark 2. As you turn, let me pray for us. Well, God, you are a God who is faithful to your people. Uh, you didn't just create us and, and leave us. You didn't just save us and expect us to struggle through this life. But instead, you have um, given us your word and the Holy Spirit to um, hear your word and, and interpret your word and apply your word to our lives. And so we pray now. Uh, as we come to this time uh, with a word before us, that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things out of your word, that you would incline our hearts towards your word, that you would give us a delight in your word, and that we would, uh, each one of us, hear your word from you and have it uh, take root in our lives and transform us for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Mark chapter 2. Let me read for us. Follow along in Mark 2, verses beginning at 1 through... 17. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had had an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and he went out before them all so that they were amazed and they glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose, and he followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Sinners is who Christ came for. You and me. He came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And so this entire section, we see the most magnified idea is that sin in sinners is forgiven by Jesus. Forgiven by Jesus. In the first account where Jesus heals the paralytic, it's one of my favorite uh, stories in the gospel accounts. 
uh, is where this paralytic is brought to Jesus. Interesting there, many were gathered in this house so jam-packed there wasn't even room at the door. And you see what Jesus was doing. Was he performing miracles at that time? No, it says uh, at the end of verse 2, he was preaching the word to them. He was preaching the word. He was preaching what he said in in chapter 1, verse 15, the, the, the gospel of the kingdom of God, of repentance and belief. He was preaching to them. They were there hearing from the great teacher. And then verse 3 introduces these men and this paralytic. So it says, They came bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him, Jesus, because of the crowd, they innovated. And right there, it just shocks me in the story of all the people who are from the door to where Jesus is in this house, in typically a courtyard kind of area, why are they so selfish? All of those people. Like, why not move aside? You always see a guy being carried on a mat. He's he's paralyzed. Clearly, he's trying to get to Jesus. Why not move? Why, Why not say, hey, let's make way. Let's make way for this guy. He clearly needs to get to Jesus. Nobody moved. It's interesting. So then his friends, not giving up, even though they had come into some, uh, a difficulty, they're now faced with uh, a difficult situation. They could either say, well, I guess we can't see Jesus today. Or we'll have to wait until this is all done and the crowd disperses. But no, instead, they persisted. They persisted. So they went and they climbed the flat roofs. They climbed onto the roof and they began to dig through the mud and straw and create a hole. And so if you think, if you think like moving the crowd would have been distracting of Jesus preaching and trying to get like, oh, well, we're not going to move because it's going to distract from the preaching. How about the roof opening up and like rubble falling through like that would have stopped everything. So it wasn't about distracting these people. I don't know what they were thinking to not move, but yet people on the inside would have had to somehow help this man finally come down. And it's just so amazing if you like visualize a situation a house full of people hearing the preaching of God, God's word from God himself and Jesus. And, and yet, they're not moved by a man who needs Jesus physically. They can see it. You know, they're sitting there thinking, okay, yeah, this is good teaching. Maybe some of them are convicted of heart, thinking we need this in our hearts and our lives. But why isn't it that they think that guy needs it or he needs to even see Jesus? It blows my mind to think of those people. And then... I think of myself sometimes like, well, am I standing in the way of people? Am I just so concerned about my own thing that I don't notice the people who need to get to Jesus and I need to help make a way and help take them there? Well, these four friends, the faithful friends, create another way and they, they go. And this effort, like I can't imagine uh, hoofing a guy up onto the roof now, going through the effort of digging through the roof and then lowering him down. They persisted because they needed their friend to see Jesus. They believed that Jesus could do something. They believed. And and they had this incredible faith. So you see um, there in verse 4 that uh, where it describes them going on the roof, opening it up, and then letting down the bed. And then verse 5. So Jesus saw. What did he see? He saw their faith. He saw their faith, which is interesting because you wonder, what did he truly see? 
Because their faith was seen in action. It, it, it took place in action. Their faith was something of, of the heart, their belief, their trust, but it transformed what they did. Their belief, their faith wasn't just he saw their hearts. He most certainly did. He didn't just see that they, they in their hearts believed he could do something. He saw it because their faith turned into action. It of course included their hearts. We know that Jesus can see uh, the heart as, as he goes on to see the hearts of the scribes. So this faith, what was it? It was a trust, a, a dependence. We are depending on Jesus to do something. We believe he can do something. And so Jesus saw their faith. This true uh, faith in heart produced a visible faith in action. They believed, and they didn't just believe that um, Jesus, and that's the amazing thing is, if Jesus would have known of the man outside, he could have just healed him of his, uh, his paralyzed state. There's something more to this incredible account. The most important thing that Jesus has in mind, this man now laid before him, unable to move on his own, unable to walk, he is paralyzed of some sort, and Jesus sees his greatest sickness, and he addresses that first. His greatest sickness is the same sickness that you and I are plagued with, a soul that is sin-sick. And that sin, when it is not dealt with by God or forgiven, will eternally kill us. And so he sees his man's greatest sickness, verse 5, and when he saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And what's incredible about that is, in their time, you know from other accounts in the Gospels that they blamed someone with disabilities or diseases, they blamed it always on sin. Right? Even his own disciples, when the boy, uh, the, the man born, born blind, they said, well, who sinned? Was it him or his parents? It was always related to sin. The idea of disease or disability was, oh, that's because of sin in their life or their family's life. So it's interesting then that Jesus goes right to this man's sin. And yet, eventually, heals his body. But the scribes that are there to likely get ammo to to destroy Jesus. They're, they're not there to be able to uh, love Jesus or adore Jesus. These scribes of the Pharisees, as, as described in verse 6, are there to try to nitpick at what he's saying. They're going to try to pick him apart and say, oh, we don't like this guy who's getting popular. Because look, he's drawing crowds to this house to hear preaching and teaching. And we want to nitpick what he's saying. So they're there to nitpick at Jesus. But what they nitpick about in this case is true. It's true. They're sitting there, uh, verse 6, some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And so what they said is true. It's true in every regard except for the fact that they don't know who it is who's standing before them. They don't understand fullness of who Jesus is. They accuse him of blasphemy. He is blaspheming, they said. Well, blasphemy in the Bible kind of comes in three different flavors. They're all 
heinous crimes. They are sins against God. The first way that someone could blaspheme is to speak evil of God's law. It's to say God's law is evil and wicked. That's blasphemy. Another way is to speak evil or slander God directly. That's blasphemy. But the third way, and the most egregious way to commit blasphemy, is to assume the rights of God. What God alone has the right to do, assuming that for yourself. Therefore, acting as if you were God. That is blasphemy. And so, since sin is against God, who gets to forgive it? God. God alone. Sin is against Him. And so He alone gets to say, that's forgiven. Nobody else can say that. But He alone can. He can say, I forgive you. No one else can. And so then, Here, there's this man, Jesus, standing in front of these scribes who know the word, they know the law, and he says, I forgive you. And they thought, you're claiming to be God right now. Like That's what they saw in that moment. You are claiming to be God. And incredibly, does Jesus deny it? No, he goes on to prove it. He goes on to expose it and say, yes, This is true. Because who can forgive sins except for the one sinned against? God. It's incredible to think uh, what sometimes we think or or others think can forgive our sins. How can my sins be forgiven? Well, sometimes, maybe there's been a season in your life where you live like good deeds can kind of outweigh your bad deeds. Erase them. Get rid of them in God's books. What can forgive your sins? Well, just doing a a little more good. A lot of people live like that, right? They know that they, they've wronged God, and yet they think, well, if I could just do ten times more good, do you think that forgives your sins? We, sometimes people live like that. Sometimes we live like that in our own heart. If we can just keep up with doing the good things, then it will just make God forget the bad. But who can forgive sins but God? He alone can say, I have forgiven the debt that you owe me. Because we, as human beings, men and women, were created by God and for his glory. And so if we live in any other way that is not glorifying to God, bringing fame and adoration to God in our hearts or in our actions, then we are indebted to him now. For those moments, for those years, for those seasons, we are indebted. Our life was for him and we've used it for ourselves. And not just for ourselves and he's still in the backdrop. We use it completely for ourselves, which is pulling people away from him in sinfulness and selfishness. We draw people's attention away from God to us. And that is wrong. And so when God alone can then forgive us and say, yes, you've done it all against me. Everything you've committed in your heart and in your life is against me. And I can say it's forgiven. But the amazing thing about the forgiveness in God is it's not just brushed under the rug like, oh, I've forgot about it or i'll just say it's forgiven but it wasn't really paid no it was paid it was paid and it was paid in in full by god himself in christ incredibly in daniel chapter 9 it talks about where forgiveness is found like can it be found in anyone else can anyone else forgive in this way in a way that is soul freeing daniel 9 9 says to the lord our god belong compassion 
and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. To the Lord our God belong compassion and forgiveness. It's his. Forgiveness belongs to God because we have rebelled against him. So then here, Jesus looks at this man and says, you're forgiven. I declare that you are forgiven. And they are shocked. They're left in wonder saying, first off, he doesn't deserve to be forgiven. Look at him. Clearly he did something wrong. Who, who deserves in their minds to be forgiven is those who kept the law, those who did what's right. Well, this man can't even keep the law. He can't do all the things that we're supposed to do, so how could he be forgiven? How could he be acceptable to God? We know the nature of forgiveness is that the person forgiving has to absorb the debt, absorb the pain. And, and we know the wages of our sin is what? Death. And not just death, you know, because everybody dies. So it's not just a death in that way, like, oh, if you could just stand in for me, that'd be good. The wages of sin is, is death and death eternal, separation from God, torment, punishment forever. That's the wages of our sin. That's what's owing to our sin. So in order to have that wages, that the indebtedness taken away, it must be absorbed. And it was in Christ. He stood on your behalf and my behalf as a sinner. Condemned. He stood not just before the crowd, not just because he was on a criminal's cross, but before God, the judge. He stood as one guilty with your guilt and my guilt. He stood before God. And why was it so dark? Why was it so um, a sad moment where the earth shook thinking this is not right? With our God, our creator now standing at odds. That's the the beauty and the darkness of Good Friday is that Christ, the innocent one, stood as condemned before God, lonely, and, and yet victorious. So therefore, he can forgive the sin. He's the one who forgives it. And imagine this paralytic. Now being, you know, I, I assume that he has this faith as well. That it's not just his friend saying, get on the mat. We don't care what you think. We're, we're going. I, I think he's expressing faith as well. He believes that God can heal him. And he's expecting to just get up and walk. And the first thing Jesus says to him is, your soul is free. You were blind, but now you can see. You, you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but now you're alive together with Christ. You are free. You are mine. You are safe. And he hears these words from Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. Do you remember hearing those words? Not just with your ears, but with your heart. Your sins, your sins are forgiven. How unbelievable that is. You know your sins. I know my sins. I know the amount of them. I know the severity of them. And I don't even know the depth of them. Only God knows the depths of my intentions while I sleep. That are probably full of wickedness. And to hear that your sins are forgiven. is an incredibly profound moment. Don't ever forget that moment. Don't ever uh, run it out of your mind or, or, or allow 
your current situation or the enemy's thoughts to tell you that you're not worthy or you're not good enough or look at how guilty you are or look at what you've done today. If you have embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've heard him say, not just with your ears, but with your heart, you've heard him say, your sins are forgiven. Don't ever forget it. Remind yourself every morning that you're a recipient of his grace. You did not deserve that phrase, your sins are forgiven. You didn't deserve it then, you don't deserve it now. But it's all grace. It's by grace that we are saved. It's by grace that we hear this phrase and it applies to our hearts that we are forgiven. That we are free. Your sins, not in part, but the whole, were nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Our sins are forgiven. We are free then from the debtedness of that sin. We are free from the penalty of that sin. We are free from the guilt of that sin because of what Christ says to us. Your sins are forgiven. Not might be, not partially. They are definitive. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new is here. And that new is a forgiven and free being in Christ. Your sins are forgiven. So when Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, that's how he can say they are forgiven. Without a doubt, if you believe in him, you trust in him, your sins have been placed upon him, they are forgiven. There's no mistaking that. It's incredible what this man has heard. Have you heard it? And if you've heard that your sins are forgiven, never forget to rejoice in it. So these men then accuse Jesus of saying he's God. And immediately, verse 8, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus question uh, within themselves. So that's incredible. So these men accuse him of like trying to pretend that he's God. And, and, and really, the sin of blasphemy in the Old Testament was punishable by death. If you try to pretend you're God, we're going to stone you to death. And so these men sitting there going like, whoa, should we like alert the authorities that we have a lunatic on our hands who needs to be dealt with? And, and Jesus perceives what's already going on in their hearts. And then he exposes it. Because he says right out to them, he says, so why were you thinking that? Why, why were you saying in your head and in your heart, why, was you, why were you questioning, he says at the end of verse 8, why do you question these things in your hearts? Why do you wonder if I can forgive sins? Why do you wonder what I said about this man or to this man? Why do you wonder? Why do you question these things in your hearts? Well, I would be questioning those things in my heart too if I sat there and I saw a guy forgiven sin. So, it's incredibly just exposing the idea. The reason he asked the question is not to be like, you shouldn't ask that question. It was more like, hey, I know what you're thinking. I know that you're thinking I'm crazy. I know that you're thinking I am not God and I should not speak that way. So then he goes on, verse 9. He says, well, which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk. What do you think is easier? You know what would be easier? Is to say your sins are forgiven. That's easier because you don't know if their sins are forgiven when I said that. 
So you think, okay, well, maybe their sins are forgiven. Like, it's easier to just say that, to throw that out. Oh, yeah, your sins are forgiven. Your heart's changed. Yeah, you have a, you have a new stomach inside you, right? Like, it's easier to say things that are unseen. It's easier for people to just throw that out there. You, all these, like, faith healers on TV, the things they're doing are not visible, are they? You know, people with cerebral palsy come, and they're like, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I know you got uh, a heart pain. and Your heart's feeling better? Your heart's feeling better. Hallelujah. And it's like, well... That's easier than telling the guy to get up and walk. Oh, clearly that is. And so when Jesus says, I'm like, I know you're wondering what I have the power to do. And I could be a lunatic telling everybody they're forgiven, telling everybody their back pain's gone and they feel better in their hearts. He says, but I'm going to show you. I'm going to show you. Because it's, it's way harder for me to tell this paralytic to get up and walk. Look at verse 10. But so that you may know that the Son of Man, referring to himself, has authority on earth to forgive sins. I'm about to do something so that you can confirm in your mind, I have the authority to forgive sins. Which they just said in their hearts, truly, only God has the authority to forgive sins. So now Jesus says, I'm about to do something to show you that I have the authority to forgive sins. Because that's not easy. He says to the paralytic, he says, I'm going to show you. And he says to the paralytic, now pick up your bed and go home. And he rose. The man rose. The man stood up. A paralytic stood up. And he walked home. He walked right past all these people. In order... To not prove that, oh, Jesus can heal physical things. Jesus said, the reason I did it was to show you that I have the authority to forgive sin. The greater sickness. The, 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 the sickness or the disability of his body is not important. What's important is his heart. So Jesus says, I'm here to show you that I'm here for what matters most. That's what he's preaching about. He wasn't preaching about healing the sick and, and the blind He was there preaching about their hearts. He was preaching about repentance, turning from sin, trusting in Jesus, believing. He was preaching about the kingdom, things that matter most, things that are eternal. That's what Jesus was preaching about. And he then displayed it in full power and full authority as he forgave this man's sin. And as he went out, end of verse 12, they were all amazed and they glorified God. They glorified God, saying, we've never saw anything like this. We've never seen that. We've never seen a man who, who claims to be God now prove that he has power to do whatever he wills. They were amazed. They glorified God. They gave honor and adoration to God for what just happened in their midst. What an, an ordinary afternoon listening to a, a preacher And now it's turned into a bit of a commotion. But now these people are left silent, amazed, awestruck at God. They glorified, they gave honor to God because of what Jesus had done in forgiving this man's sin. Jesus is for sinners. He's for sinners. And he displays that as the story goes on. Well, he went out again beside the sea and a crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them again. And then he passed by and he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. 
And as you know, tax collectors in that day just had this, um, it was just a stereotype, which is likely true of most of them, was they, they were thieves. They took more than they deserved. You know, if the bill was 100, they took 150 and pocketed the 50. Tax collector was synonymous with a sinner uh, in that day. And so here's Levi, or another name for him is Matthew, sitting at the tax booth, collecting taxes. And Jesus, well, he's in the midst of his job, maybe in the midst of his sin, looks at him, he says, follow me. It's not that he was like being holy and like, oh, I'm just making sure all the other tax collectors are being good. We don't have any indication. We can just assume that he was a tax collector like everyone else, but maybe not. Maybe it was just his role he had. Either way, the, the picture of him as a tax collector was not good. The, the fishermen, you know, they're supposedly the dumb guys. The tax collector, he's supposedly a sketchy guy. So Jesus comes to him and says, follow me. And Levi rose and followed him. And then he reclined, Jesus, verse 15, reclined at the table in his house with many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And there were many who followed him. Incredible. Tax collectors and sinners, and there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, again, when they saw, they're there to accuse and point out and, and pick apart this Jesus. The scribes of the Pharisees were there, and they saw that he was eating with sinners, getting close to them, sharing with them, sitting with them, being near to them, associating with them, these scribes, these holier-than-thou, the ones who obeyed the law and knew the law, wouldn't even dare to bend a knee to a sinner. Here's Jesus lounging with them. The way they ate was literally like laying on their sides, lounging. They didn't have table and chairs, so they lounged on each other. And so here's Jesus lounging with these sinners. And the, and the scribes are annoyed. <laughs> Why does he do that? Why is he there with them? Doesn't he know who they are? They're the filth of the earth. If, he is, if he's supposedly the holy one, he should be with the holy people. He should be having a little more respect for himself. But there's Jesus eating with these sinners. So the scribes then turn to his disciples and say, why does he eat, at the end of verse 16, why does he eat with the tax collectors and sinners? And they didn't answer, but Jesus did. Jesus answered, uh, verse 17, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came to, uh, not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Incredibly there, he, he, he makes a parallel between sick people and sinners, and between healthy people and righteous, or those who think they're healthy, and those who think they're righteous. There's that parallel. He says, well, if you think that you're healthy, you don't need a doctor. But if you know you're sick, you need one. So he says, I came as the great physician for the sin sickness that's out there. I came, he says, not to call the righteous, those who are already have it all together and already think they're going to heaven, or those who are super, super holy, those who follow all the rules, I didn't come for you. I only came for those who are broken and realize that before God, even their own righteousness is filthy rags. Those, those are the ones I came for. The ones who are broken. 
the ones who are unworthy, the ones who do not deserve love from God or, or even an, an audience before God, those are the ones, these sinners, you and me, the ones who have sins that are outward, the ones who have sin struggles in our hearts. He says, I came for them. Those who admit they're sick, who need a doctor. Those who admit that we are not worthy to stand before the cross or God. He says, those are the ones I came for. I came for them. I, that's why he says, I came to preach. I came to preach to them. Incredibly, that's what he came and, and addressed mainly in that paralytic man. It was the man's greatest sickness, his sin. Son, your sins are forgiven. And yet he had another sickness of sorts, right? He needed a physician, physically. And, and yet Jesus prioritized and said, this man's coming. And, and clearly that man in his heart recognizes his soul sickness too. Because Jesus acts then as the greatest physician and, and heals his soul of its Sin sickness, the disease that is robbing him of a true relationship and union with God, sin. So when Christ does that for us and says your sins are forgiven, does it remove sin from us? Do we stop sinning that moment? Oh, I wish. I wish. And that's what makes us long for the day when he returns. Long for the day when we'll see him face to face. One of the, I think one of the best parts of being in glory with God is there is no more sin in my heart. There's no more sin. There's no more inclinations to serve myself. It's only affection for God that is unhindered by my sin. So Jesus, he deals with that in part. He forgives the sin. The, the, the thing that's blocking us from that union with God, the forgiveness with God, the grace with God, the, the growing in sanctification, the putting off of the old man, the clinging to the new self, he says, that's the greatest sickness, and I came for those who would admit it. And I came not so that they could be humiliated. I came to forgive them. I came for the sinners. So when these scribes are offended that he's hanging out with the lowly and the sinners, Jesus says, that's who I came for. I came for them. I came for you because you have the greatest need in your heart and in your soul. Your, your, your greatest need is not physical. It's not external. It's not a financial need or a marriage need or a, any other need. Your greatest need is what Jesus can solve in a moment. is the forgiveness for your sins and a, and a right relationship with God. And that's what he displays here. And he displays that he alone has the authority to do so on earth. And I just love their response, and it ought to be our response too. It's just glory to God. And I think of those four men who brought that paralytic. The rejoicing. Their friend got to walk away, but ultimately their friend is now free. He's no longer bearing down with the weight of his sin and his guilt, and he's united with God in Christ. Those four men who, who pursued Jesus on behalf of their friend. They went through all the effort. And you think, you know, am I a person like that? Am I bringing people to Jesus no matter the obstacle? Am I bringing them to Jesus? Am I going to find an alternative way? Maybe they don't want to talk about, you know, uh, who God is in creation. Maybe they don't want to talk about their, their sinfulness or they don't want to talk about hell. Well, what's the way? 
that I'm going to bring them to Jesus, to bring them before him and say, look how beautiful he is, and hear his words, I forgive you. How are we going to bring people to Jesus? So that at the end of the day, you and me and all those involved may glorify God for what he has done, because we have not seen anything like it. We celebrate and we rejoice in what God does in Christ. Not just then, not just to the paralytic, to you, in your heart, in your life today. What has he done? Glorify God for it. Put it on display for others to see. That's the, um, I think the tragedy sometimes of us being so like hidden with our sin and our struggles. The tragedy is we don't, people don't get to see us released from those on a daily basis. Right? If you struggle with the temptation yesterday and, and you struggle with it um, privately, but God delivered you. He allowed you to, to say no to that temptation. Privately, you get to rejoice. But if you share your temptation with others, say, you pray for me, I'm tempted. When you succeed with God's help, two people get to rejoice. So the more you share and and become vulnerable, like a sinner is just vulnerable, laid out. They're making no name for themselves. Lay yourself out before Jesus, before others, and say, look, I'm a mess, and I need Jesus today and tomorrow and the next day. You want to watch? You want to join me in rejoicing so that we can all glorify God? Because you've never seen anything quite like this, mess. But you're going to see what God has done in it and God will do in it. So we get to rejoice and be amazed and glorify God seeing what he does day in and day out. Because Jesus has the authority to ultimately forgive that sin. And we give him honor and glory for that. So let me pray for us. Father, you um, see our hearts. They're fully exposed before you. You know our thoughts before we think them. You know the words on our mouth. You know the intentions of our hearts. And you know that they are full of ways that are selfish, ways that are sinful, ways that go directly against you and say you're not worthy of our time or our our affection in this moment. And God, we are heartbroken by that. We want to be more heartbroken by our sin. But we recognize that you are for sinners, that you love those who can see they're sick, not us who are righteous, but those who admit our brokenness before you. Thank you. Thank you that Christ came for us, that he might say to us, first and foremost, that we're forgiven. And then secondly, he, he releases us from other things. So we thank you. Uh, and we want to glorify you in, in the little victories you give us. Help us to be vulnerable. Help us to share those. Help us also to bring others in and bring many to Jesus, to see him, that they may also hear their sins can be forgiven. Thank you so much for what Christ has shown us, even in this passage, about your love and your compassion, your grace and your mercy, and ultimately the forgiveness that was a a price that no one else could pay but him alone. Thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.